A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. This podcast will look at episodes in relation to Buffy and Angel as a whole, and therefore contains spoilers for the entirety of both series. If you haven't seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series, go and watch them before you listen to this. Remember, you've been warned. The hardest thing in this world is to live in it. That's why there's us, champions. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be. The Earth is definitely doomed. It's Tuesday, so it must be time to return to the Hellmouth. We're going through the Buffyverse episode by episode and a look back at Joss Whedon's iconic show. I'm MC, and I'm here with... This is Andy. And this is David. Today we're talking about episode five of season one, Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. It was directed by David Semmel and written by Rob DeHook and Dean Batali, and the original air date was March 31st, 1997. Never kill a boy on the first date. That's good advice. advice. My opinion on this episode has not really changed much since the first airing of it, in that I kind of nothing it. I don't dislike it, but I don't really like it. I like the ending of this episode, which we will get into more detail on a little bit later but for the most part this episode is just kind of it's there buffy has her personal life is interrupted by slaying we have better episodes that do that yeah i mean this is i have to say yeah this isn't a great episode i mean it's i think one of it's one of the early times when the conflict between personal life and slaying is really brought to the forefront yeah it's momentous in that sense but as an episode, eh. It was momentous in that this is the first episode where we get the vampire slaying opening, which will become a you know signature of the show right. where we open up with Buffy fighting vampires. And I, well, I think probably the highlights of this episode for me are one, seeing the master again, because the master is always yes. awesome. And also the development in Buffy and Giles's relationship, because I do feel like this is one of the first episodes where we get a real jump from the Watcher Slayer dynamic into more of a fatherly type relationship. Yes, very much so. I think I like this a lot better than you guys did i mean it's not like my top 10 episodes of all time but i remember thinking yeah it's a really nothing episode i skip it a lot but you know i think watching it this time through i i thought it was really it's filler but really solid and entertaining filler it's always definitely serviceable it's not like i don't know teacher's pet which is so (laughs) bad our new bar (laughs) i think so i think that like maybe my least favorite episode ever I, I like it a lot more than I did the first time and the first couple times I saw it. It does really set up those things, themes, those first times of destiny, free will, Buffy wanting to have the normal life. And the conversation with Giles really is just enormously amazing. Probably my biggest problem with this episode is that I didn't buy so much of the conflict in it just because I... I don't understand why Buffy and Cordelia would have a thing for Owen. Hmm. I mean, not that Owen seems like a bad guy, just that he does not seem like the type of guy that Buffy and Cordelia would be fighting over. Yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, the only thing I could think of is like, they talk about how he really doesn't say much. <laughs> Maybe it's the mystery. I've got no idea otherwise. <laughs> Christopher Welt, he's a nice looking guy, but I don't think he's any better looking than Nikki Brendan. And just the way they talk about the Owen character, you know, he he's a lit nerd. I actually, um, and I'd mentioned this before we started recording, I got out my copy of the Sunnydale High Yearbook, which they came out with, I guess, in May 1999, right after they graduated from high school. So they have information about all of the students at Sunnydale High, and Owen is included in there. And they actually have a list of his activities. And his activities at school are the school's literary magazine, the Sunnydale High Yearbook, the drama club, he played tennis, and in the last year he was class president, and it's just all of those things. It's like, yeah, he's a lit nerd. He is, which is probably why I like him more in this rewatch. One of the issues I have with Owen is they keep talking about him. He's so solitary and mysterious, and I think maybe it's not great casting Because all I saw was this, like, sunny, preppy guy that read Emily Dickinson, and the actor seems, like, a little vacant. But as a character, I 
I have nice things to say about him, but yeah, he's a lit nerd. He's totally a lit nerd. He also, there was some stuff that seemed like really pretentious with him where he's like, he carries around a oh, fucking yes. pocket watch and he's, when I he's know. talking to Buffy and it's like, I don't really like girls because, you know, they don't really seem to be into reading and stuff. They're just interested in dating. And I was like, oh my God, come on, dude. Okay. Yeah. And don't say that while you're on a date. Especially yeah. when- the day before, he had also gone out with a group of people, and, you know, he's, like, trying to explain away, like, dancing with Cordelia a couple times. It's like, dude, you didn't have to. You you chose to do that. So you've gone out two nights in a row, and don't give me this whole thing about girls just are interested in dating. To be fair, he does not look happy dancing no, with Cordelia. No, that's true, but... <laughs> he really does not look No, happy. what does he say? He's like, well, she's pretty grabby. You know, she's used to getting her way, our Cordelia, and she's... Oh, yes, she is. <laughs> I, I do I don't appreciate how at this point and they do it all the way I think even through season two really pit women against women they really do yeah especially Cordelia and Buffy oh, here they they very you much know do. they really pit and, and there are a couple of things that you know when Buffy makes the comment about Cordelia's hips right I'm like way for the women on woman hate from something that is considered a very very feminist show you see those subtle things that you're like yeah i guess for 1997 is a super feminist but owen definitely when you, you say he's pretentious i i you're I, I totally agree when he hands her the pocket watch now i actually own a couple of pocket watches but i was like even i think you're overdoing <laughs> <laughs> true very true yeah there's definitely a pretentiousness he hasn't grown probably into himself he's still doing all his affectations of deepness and even when he talks about Emily Dickinson at the bronze, it's like you kind of get this feeling he's got this very not particularly deep understanding of Dickinson, like deeper than Buffy's, yeah. but but not, you know, he's he, the way he talks about it, it's where you're sort of like, yeah, you really, this is a thing you've gotten into, but you don't really... You don't really get it yet. Well, part of me was wondering if it was almost he, he was putting it on because, I mean, he goes into the library to get out a copy of Emily Dickinson because he's lost his copy, which is apparently so precious to him that he can't go a day without owning it. It's like, well, if you've lost yeah. a copy, why don't you just wait until you like get out of school and then go buy a new copy of your own? Like, No, you're just going into the library because you want to flirt with Buffy. But yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Which, you know, is, which is fine, but, you know, it just, Buffy, I can almost buy, you know, having a thing for him. Because, I mean, it certainly goes with talking about him brooding for 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, Buffy likes the brooders. That, that is her type. But Cordelia, I, I mean, I'm, part of me is like, is Cordelia just into him because Buffy's into him? Uh, yes. That would not be surprising. I mean, yeah, I, th I think that's probably, I mean, it's obviously not stated explicitly, but yeah, now that you say it, it's like, yep, that sounds right. Yeah, I mean, the, the first time she goes over to him, does she know Buffy's coming? I don't, I think they sort of get there at the same time, but I mean, Cordy's from Sunnydale. Like, wouldn't she have tried to pick up on Owen unless he like came back from the summer all hot and hadn't been before because that happens to teenage boys. <laughs> But yeah, I don't, yeah, I think part of it is because it's just, it's because Buffy wants him. She's got it in for Buffy at this point. She's delightful, but <laughs> she has it in for Buffy. I love Cordelia in this episode for as horrible as she is. Like, this is the episode with her iconic yes! line, hello, salty goodness. Hello, yes. salty goodness. Do, do any of you guys still say that with your friends? Because I know I do. I don't, but... <laughs> I do. Oh, gosh, my friend Brad and I, if we're out somewhere and there's a good-looking person that we like, we're like, hello, salty goodness. Still, all these years later, it's definitely our code word for, hey, take a look. Out of the corner of your eye so you're not objectifying people, but hey, take a look. That line was so iconic, they actually bring it back in the Angel episode, Spin the Bottle, when... All of the characters get reverted back yes, to their selves. Yes, they do. So yeah. Cordelia oh. says, hello, salty goodness, when she sees Angel again. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's really, it's it's a great line. And one I quote often. Yes, apparently. <laughs> it is. I also say, if the apocalypse comes, beep me, even though I've never owned a beeper. 
Yeah, the beeper. Does the beeper really come back ever? No. It no, it, it's just back. like they, they do this gesture towards the beeper. I think they figured out after they wrote the part where, yeah, we can beep Buffy. Oh, but we can't because there's no phone. They're like, oh, yeah. No, it maybe does come back sense. once because I think Buffy mentions when Jenny is wanting to take Giles to like the football game. Oh, yeah, right. She says, yeah, you've got my beeper. It's all going to be go and have fun at the football game. I've got my beeper on. So it does come back like once. Yeah, this is definitely an interesting time in terms of communication because Buffy did kind of come up when you suddenly did have the cellular thing start to come into prominence. Because I, and I actually think that if I recall correctly, Joss said that they avoided giving them cell phones just because Mm. they wanted to continue the oh no somebody's in danger and we can't get them help isolate people because that's where danger is cell phones only come up in like the last season yeah i Mm. think in like season seven they were a bit quicker on it on angel but they had the advantage of angel as an old man and doesn't know how to use a cell phone right the jokes about that yeah yeah and i i actually had several friends with beepers I did not have one, but my code to let my friend know I was calling was actually, I think it was 314, which is the number of the room in the initiative. Uh, Yes. Because she's like a huge Buffy fan. We watch Buffy together all the time. So our code for I'm calling, it's not an emergency, but give me a call back is 314. Nice. So yeah, obviously, I'm a huge Buffy nerd, obviously. I'm just thinking, I'm remembering like around this time, being an old person, I didn't get into the whole beeper thing. But I remember my cousin who was like, I don't know, like 12 or so at the time. Like for Christmas, she wanted a beeper. And I was going, what? Why? Yeah, I never had a beeper. Uh, I I had no I had no reason to need it because I, I, I hated people. So yeah, I didn't either. My friend that had the beeper was the department stage manager for the theater at our university. So she frequently did need to be able to, like, have people get a hold of her to, like, call in sick to rehearsal or let him know she was going right. to be late. So that is why she had a beeper. Yeah, see, that's the, I always figured there were reasons people needed beepers, but that brief period where people just had beepers generally, I never understood because it's like, okay, so people can bother you, but you can't actually bother mm-hmm. them. What's the point? I mean, unless you're a doctor who still have beepers. But well, yeah. exactly. I, like I say, there are some people who like had a legitimate need, but but there was a point where like everyone just had a beeper, and it was like, why would you do that? We still have a beeper that we use for the social work department at the cancer center where I'm interning, but no one ever uses it. Like one of us is supposed to carry it every day, but we have like an instant interdepartmental messaging system so no one actually uses it but we're supposed to have it so that's pretty hilarious actually i mean we do work around doctors so it it's a hospital setting so there's that but so great conversation about beepers (laughs) yes beat me if the apocalypse comes both of you back to the episode (laughs) back to the episode in this episode buffy is her entire plot in this episode is trying to have a normal life wanting to go out on dates And then with Xander and Willow, you have them so one note. Xander and Willow are just, Xander wants to stop Buffy from going out, and Willow is just playing the fucking cheerleader. That's the only thing they are doing this episode. Yeah, Willow, you have real, really no notion of who Willow is at this point. We really don't. We know she can hack computers, and that's about it. And she likes Xander. And she she likes Xander. Yeah, she likes Xander. I don't really get anything about willow until we get to irobot eugene yeah i don't think we really do which is coming up pretty quickly well everything in the first season is going to come up quickly well yes it's still, yeah only 12 episodes now it's time for the weekly segment where we bitch about xander harris uh, <laughs> da, da, da. because when buffy is changing and he is fetzing with that oh. mirror i was i couldn't but i like it hit me before i saw the pit with the mirror it hit me that Buffy was actually changing with Xander in the room, and I was like, why is she doing that? Yeah, I mean, that is weird. And then the mirror thing happens, and I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, it was so <laughs> gross. I was like, another instance of Xander being so completely gross, and not just kind of gross, like, no, that's invasively, no, that's disgustingly gross. And then trying to sabotage the date. Yeah, that, yeah, Buffy doesn't like to be touched. 
Come on, no. grow up, dude. No, he is... Those... I mean, he's not horrible throughout the episode, but those moments are just some of the worst ever. I really hated when Willow says we should go to, and Xander thinks that she's talking about following Buffy and Owen on their date. Well, Willow's like, no, let's go with Giles to make sure he doesn't die. And yeah. Xander's like, no, he's he's gonna be fine. He's gone. He's gone already. No. Right. <laughs> I know that, like, Owen seems kind of, like, nothingy, but, like, contrast the way Xander acts with actually how Z- Owen seems really interested in actually getting to know Buffy. It isn't till the end of the episode where they, oh, he's all excited about the death and the thing. All the way through, he's still, you know, saying, I would like to get to know you. He's recognizing her good qualities. He, I guess, sees a little of her mystery. and But he's she's genuinely trying to... He genuinely likes her and not just in the I'm so physically attracted to her way. He wants to actually engage her in conversation. So throughout the episode, I'm like, no, he's fine. Yeah. Then, of course, we get to the end and it's like, oh, no, you have issues. But throughout the most of the episode, he's like, no, he seems like a perfectly reasonable person to date. Yeah, he's a little white bread. Well, yeah, but he's a fine person. And actually, if I were you know, in high school, I'd probably have a huge crush on Owen because that's like my type of guy. But I know that what I look for in a guy is different than what Buffy and Cordelia are going to be looking for in a guy. So yeah, I would probably have been into him slightly, except he would have worn a lot more black and listened to The Cure. Yeah, that's probably the same with me. Right. So like, yeah, the the actual Owen himself, I'm like, eh. But, you know, slightly darker, with some docks and a ratty t-shirt, but kind of pretentious, carrying a pocket watch and reading Emily Dickinson. Yeah, I, I was totally into that. So basically, you want Owen mixed with Michael from Gingerbread. Kind of? Maybe a little bit? And, like, I, I kind of get some of the Owen stuff, because true facts, like, we thought it was really cool to go sneak into the graveyard. Oh, I used to take walks in the graveyard, yeah. And, like, read poetry, uh, you know, and make out on the tombstones, like, totally disrespectful, but we did it all the time, so I kind of get that whole, ooh, let's go to the funeral home thing where Owen's coming from, but I think he probably turned out to be a decent dude. Owen was around in the 2010s, he'd be Instagramming pictures of himself skydiving with hashtag YOLO. (laughs) Probably? The other thing I do like about him is he's he says the thing about like, yeah, it's okay, I'm kind of a sissy when he's getting beat up by the vampire without it being a threat to his masculinity like Xander. I thought what he actually said was he tried to bite me, what a sissy. Oh, okay, I misheard that. Okay, well, that reverses that position there. But, you know, he seems wanting to engage in his sensitive side. I can appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, he does actually seem, as you say, he he seems interested in getting to know Buffy. What we see is we don't see anything really happen between them. But had the Slayer thing not gotten in the way, they could have possibly had a perfectly reasonable relationship. He would have been a guy maybe worth trying to date, even if it wasn't, even if we can see that it wouldn't have worked long term. Of course, I think part of the thing is, I think it's the Slayer thing that's actually attracting him, like even before he knows about it. Because, I mean, we talk about Buffy wants to get to know him because he's, you know, a mysterious guy. I think Buffy's a very mysterious girl. And I think for somebody like Owen, that's probably very attractive to him, where it's like she's new and mysterious. And I would like to, you know, she seems deep because she hangs out in the library all the time. So sort of the... She is this puzzle I need to unwrap. Almost, yeah. Yeah. I'll concede that point. Yeah, that's a really fair point. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, because, I mean, like, Buffy's cool. I mean, who doesn't want to get to know Buffy? Totally. Right. Yeah. No, I think he's kind of a, I wrote down, kind of a proto-Riley. Yeah, I could see that. Mm. But, yeah. A little bit. And, I, again, this is coming from someone who doesn't hate Riley like the rest of the fandom hates Riley. I don't know if, if these two men are the right kind of dudes for Buffy, not because of the darkness right. thing, but little, a little bit of yeah. Riley, a little bit of Scott Hope. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. A little bit of Riley. Like, you know, like, these are good dudes. Like, I'd be super interested in going out with them. But I'm also, you know, 40 something and have gotten over my brooding bad boy vampire phase. 
<laughs> Mostly. Um, right. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it, it's nice to see someone that is actually interested in getting to know her for whatever, for whatever reason. I have a little, I, yeah. I wrote a little um, headcanon fic thing about Owen. If you guys want to hear it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, sure. it's, I didn't write fic because I'm terrible at that. But like, okay. So I want a fic where Buffy goes back to school to finish her degree. She's like 35 at this point. Runs into Owen, who's now a lit professor and has grown past his fascination with death. And like, is like that kind of awkward ab- academic that never got that he was a hottie instead of death danger. He's into like rock climbing and mountain biking. And he wears a cardigan. Right. And they end up and wears a cardigan and they end up dating and getting a nice dog together. And then he knows about the Slayer. But Buffy's mostly passed it to other Slayers and is only consulting if there's a major apocalypse. <laughs> and so, you know, he's a good supportive partner. While Buffy is going and getting her law degree because, you know, she has aptitude for justice professions. I can totally accept that. Yeah, that that was my that was mm-hmm. my dumb little like, all right, I'm going to write that. I'm going to I'm going to headcanon on this for a while. So, you know. Consulting Slayer. Consulting my con- Yeah, she's a consulting Slayer. She made up the job. <laughs> one thing that struck me was when Buffy's like, what do kids do on dates? And in my head, I just went the same thing they do every night. Go to the bronze. <laughs> oh, the bronze. The bronze. And what are they doing there on a school night at 8 p.m.? We could probably ask that. For almost every episode. True. I'm like, what are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. You can oh, also ask what Velvet Chain is doing there on a school night. Right. I actually liked them a bit. I yeah. liked them. No. It's yeah. actually, I think this is the one of the first bands that we've had at, as the bronze bands. They performed Strong and Treason, by the way. Uh, it's the first band that I actually went, hey, I recognize that name. Yeah, I think I recognize that name too. Yeah, I... I'm not going to recognize any of the names of the band. <laughs> the other music that's played is Rotten Apple by Three Day Wheelie, which is playing when Cordelia and Owen are dancing. Junkie Girl by Pretty Boy Floyd when Angel arrives at the bronze. And Let the Sun Fall Down by Kim Ritchie when Buffy breaks up with Owen. And I love Kim Ritchie, actually. I really enjoy her music, which I discovered through the Angel soundtrack. She's got a really pretty track on that soundtrack. And I sort of listened to a bunch more of her stuff. And it's... You know, it's folksy girl music, but I, it's it's solid. I like Kim Ritchie. Those are music for the day. Okay, so of course, other than Buffy's pursuit of Owen, we have a whole big story with the Master and what is termed in this episode the Order of Aurelius. And this is the first time that the Master's group is given a, a name. Mm-hmm. I only mm. think that name is mentioned once more. It's mentioned in the Angel episode Darla. So, like, that's how far apart they are. Okay, that explains what it's something I was confused about. And what is that? Because I when I always that when they say, "Oh, when Buffy refers to them as a hoity-toity new new vampire sect," I'm like, "New? Yeah. How are they new? Don't you don't you know the Master's history at all?" And I mean, the Order of Aurelius actually goes back farther than the Master. He is only the current Master of the Order of Aurelius. According to the lore, the Order of Aurelius has been around since like the 13th century. And the Master took it over in the 18th. Huh. But I mean, definitely not a new uh, vampire sect. But I'm guessing that she hasn't connected the Master with the Order of Aurelius. Even though she's the one who actually points out that the symbol is familiar. Yeah. Because she saw it in a book previously. Uh, when I was uh, reading up on this episode, I saw a lot of people calling out uh, the ring being left behind as a uh, as a mistake in the episode. Does it bother anyone that the ring was actually left behind? It did not bother me in the least. No, left behind. Well, because Buffy stakes the vampire and the ring is mm-hmm. left behind. Oh, right. And usually all of their stuff is dusted. And all I'm thinking of is that, you know, well, I mean, it's like probably like some mystical ring or something that's, you know. Or or even a, a, an artifact of the order. So, yeah, no, that so makes it sense belongs to, me. to the order, not to the vampire, perhaps. I mean, there are probably a million ways you could explain that. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Yeah, it never bothered me. Some of that stuff doesn't bother me on any show. I'm like, I don't know, it was a thing. Get back to the 
characters talking and doing the things I like. Yeah, I mean, obviously it happened because it needed to happen, because Buffy needs to find out about the Order of Aurelius and mm-hmm. the coming right. of the Anointed One. Well, that's that's always the answer. At the bottom of everything, that's always yes. the answer, is because plot. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so this episode yeah. is the one that introduces the Annoying One. Yeah, oh, the yes. Annoying One. I have to say, I have a lot more problems with the whole prophecy thing and all its tendrils than than the ring. <laughs> About how it's not really a prophecy, but basically directions. How it's like, <laughs> wait, what? No, it's like, well, I mean, just like, well, for instance, so at the end, the master talks, gives the line about how the Slayer will not know him and he will lead her to destruction. And I'm like, does Giles not have that part of the prophecy? And also, why do they turn... Borba? Yeah, Borba. Why do they turn Borba? That's a very good question. And how do they know which one's supposed to be the anointed one? Because the master just sends them out. Well, here's the thing. It's not really a prophecy if people are going out to actually fulfill it. Because obviously Giles takes it as a prophecy while the master is taking it as directions. Ah, interesting. Yes, that's true. The um, brethren of Aurelius goes out to kill these people. So I think they actually chose Colin to be the anointed one because, I don't know, innocence. Maybe. But, but yeah, but still, it's like, maybe, I mean, I mean, we, we can theorize, yeah. but like, it doesn't actually make sense. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, there, there's a prophecy because, you know, we need to interrupt Buffy's dates. Well, right. Yeah, again. Well, what we the what little we ever get about the Order of Aurelius and just taking sort of the character of the master, they're very tied to very traditional stuff, like following these traditions and living underground mm. and all these things. And so even though it's not taken as a, a prophecy, but as instructions, he's still going to follow them and he's still going to follow them on the night that the writing says he's supposed to be following them. Right. So the master loves the classic. He does. It's like a Bible. He's like, and he says it like, (laughs) then I love that he keeps going with the chiding of the, of the minions. Yes, of course. Oh, the sass master. I love him. But yeah, he does take these things and the symbolism. Whereas you look at someone, even though they're part of the order, like Spike and Drew, they don't take the ritual of it as seriously. And, most vampires in the world that we see outside of the master and this order take that kind of ritual as seriously. And while we're on the master, we should say, of course, he is wonderful as mm-hmm. usual. Um, even though he doesn't have a whole lot to do here, but he is he he makes the most of his his short mm-hmm. appearance. Yeah, Mark Metcalf always does. He makes great use of what he's given. He's a professional, so he knows what his role is supposed to do. But also, he's not boring. Like, that kind of role could be super boring. Oh, no, he has a lot of fun he with He really it. does. And it, it just hit me the other day what Mark Metcalf is best known for. Yes. Which I had totally forgotten. Animal House. Yes, he's best known as Doug Niedermeyer in Animal House. And, of course, as the father in the Twisted Sister video, right. we're not going to take it. Which is, I am convinced, actually Doug Niedermeyer, an older Doug Niedermeyer. Because I, I actually went and watched the video. He is referred to as Douglas. And he gives the exact same speech from Animal House. <laughs> Mark Metcalf is also a very nice guy. I got to have dinner with him once. Oh, that's awesome. I have heard that. He was super cool. I was just like, oh, right. that's He's Niedermeyer. Oh, my God. And he's the, and he's the maestro from Seinfeld, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, my knowing that would involve watching Seinfeld. Yeah, I don't so watch I don't it, but that. I did know that, yeah. Yeah, I've not watched much. It was like super, super popular when I was in college, but they were always too mean to each other and I can't handle it. Yeah. Mm, yeah, no, I, well, I have feelings about Seinfeld, but we won't. Right, yeah, I do too. No, he's, he's really delightful in pretty much everything, so. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's been doing stuff for, he's, his first film is like in 1973. Really? Um, I, yeah, I, I looked it up and in fact, he was in the Jane Fonda movie, Julia. Yeah. Back in the early to mid-70s, which I saw back in the day, and I was like, I totally don't remember him. I'm not surprised, because I wouldn't have known who he was until a few years later when he did Animal House. He's a that guy. Yeah, he's a that guy actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is great. That's the kind of career that lots of people probably aspire to. Yeah, he's a character actor. Yeah. An interesting omission in this episode, considering there is so much about the Order of Aurelius, we don't have any appearance from Darla. 
And all I kept on thinking was, where the hell is Darla? I know. It's a good question. You would think they would bring her back, you know, even as just like a background master doing a thing, because she's supposed to be, she's supposed to be this like vampire that's so precious to the master. But yeah, we, we see her in the first episode. And then we see and her. And we see her in Angel. And Angel. And then we don't. Right. She's going to show up very soon. Yeah. yeah. Now, I did hear a rumor that she and Allie didn't get along. Yeah, I heard that too. And also, I know in the first episode, she was originally supposed to die. And she did in the original pilot. Yes. So it's possible that they just didn't really know what to do with her. And they planned to not bring her back. Because in the first episode, she's really just a minion. And it's only when they come to angel that they yes. really established that you know she's the master's favorite she is angels they do they establish that she's angel sire oh yes they do establish that she's angel sire and angel famously when he feeds off her boobs yes yes looking back at it now it does stand out to me that she's not in this episode and speaking of people who aren't around we have cordy with her crew we haven't seen harmony since like since the, the first remember. episode yeah. Yeah. Which feels weird. I mean, again, it's probably just a casting issue or something, but it feels, having seen past this, it feels odd that Harmony is not part of Cordelia's crew. Cordelia's crew changes a lot. Yeah. Like, it's not mm-hmm. consistent. Like, you True. see Harmony a lot later on, and you see Aura. Yeah. But other than yeah. that, her crew, like, changes every Every episode. Yeah, I think those two are the mm. ones that are the most consistent. Because obviously Harmony becomes, you know, a huge player in things. Aura, I believe, turns up again at the end of this season. And then she will be referenced on Angel. Yeah. Uh, where mm. Cordelia is talking to her on the phone. Yeah, they're really trying to figure out things in this first season. Yeah. A note that I have is, why the fuck doesn't Angel go to the funeral home? That's a darn good question. Well, because he didn't have a date. <laughs> and and it's followed up with, <laughs> I forgot how useless Angel really is in the first season. However, I, I have to give him this. David Boreanaz does not totally embarrass himself in this episode. No, he really doesn't. He is a, he's a little He's bit. fine. He's learning how to act. They cut down on the tension a little bit. It's not quite as fighty between them. And there is, you're able to see jealousy. Mm-hmm. David is able to portray jealousy and actually those are some of the moments Mm -hmm. that i like the best from angel when i mean the one that sticks out to me is uh later on in pangs when he sees riley and he's talking to willow all serious and he goes who's that and there is a little moment of that in this one where he's yeah obviously jealous about owen yeah i don't think they know quite what to do with angel either i mean there's obviously some setup but i keep forgetting he's in these episodes much i think they kind of wrote themselves into a corner in that way in a way because they 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 sort of they can't do much with angel until they reveal the big reveal which we'll see in a couple of episodes so it's sort of like oh well here's this character we want him around because he's going to become important but what can we do without tipping our hand i mean in this episode there is seriously like no point in him coming into this episode other than to add a little more tension because two seconds later xander and willow show up and give buffy more information than angel had yes yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think they need to pepper him in a little bit and the writers know that put a little angel in here because it's gonna become really important if we don't see him periodically what's the point sort of a catch-22 yeah it's like we need to include him to a certain extent but we can't do much with him yet. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to get a lot more doing things with Angel very soon. And he's going to become the focus of this show and the angst for, you know, the next two and a half seasons. So we'll get plenty of Angel. We also, which I think this is a weekly segment as well. And that's talking about Rupert Giles being awesome. Yes. Oh, yes. Although to be honest, I'm gonna I'm gonna warn you right up front. I don't think he's that awesome uh, in a lot of ways here. In a lot of ways, he is, but there are other ways where I'm like, why did you do that? Him climbing into the uh, with the dead body, the morgue drawer. I like that. Yeah, I I liked it until I went. 
why did he leave his cross outside? <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, that's that that just seems like killing va- like vampire 101 is like you don't give up your cross. <laughs> that's true. One thing I do like about Giles is that he does want to allow Buffy to have this real life when any other watcher would just be like, no, you're going, you know, you're, you're the slayer. Yes. You go. I don't care. You're lucky. I let you live with your family, but Giles is like, yeah. go have your date. I am going to go take care of things. And we have seen from many other watchers. Other watchers don't do that. No, no, they don't. Yeah. Well, this is the first episode where we get an inkling of how Giles is not your standard yeah. watcher. I mean, we'll obviously see much more later. And at this point, I don't think we know what Watchers are about. I mean, they reference them, they talk about, but we don't have the full picture of Watchers take kids away oh, from no. their parents. We don't find that out until What's My Line, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And in fact, this this is the episode where Giles says, I don't have an instruction Which manual. Which is a lie. My immediate thought was, no, no, you do have an instruction manual. <laughs> You're just not paying attention to it. <laughs> because you're, you're not going to do that with Buffy. And I think he really gets that and respects it. Right. And Well, that's the thing. He's right to ignore the instruction manual, but that is an outright lie. And they do also imply in this one that being a watcher is a matter of predestination. Mm-hmm. And like family yes. legacy. Yeah. Which is a carryover from the movie in which Merrick is actually reincarnated, if I remember correctly. Yep. Hmm. And I mean, yeah, it, it does become more of a matter of legacy in this version. But there is, he, Giles specifically said, I was 10 when my dad said that I was destined to be a watcher. Mm-hmm. Because he wanted to be a fire pi- fighter pilot or a grocer. Or a grocer, yes. yes. Which is lovely. Both both very respectable And of course, as soon as the words pilot comes out of his mouth i immediately go to cabin pressure oh for for those of you who don't know cabin pressure is a bbc radio series which anthony stewart head um has a recurring role on as a very smooth talking pilot he's not a fighter pilot he's just a commercial pilot but he is so good at. i had forgotten about this oh my god yes the dulcet tones of anthony stewart head and uh Roger Allen competing about who can be smoother is one of the greatest joys you will ever hear. It's it's amazing. So yeah, and so listeners, if you haven't gotten into cabin pressure, highly recommended. It. It's amazing, and I think it's Benedict Cumberbatch Batch's very best role. Benedict Cumberbatch, where he's playing the most nervous guy on the show, and everybody oh, it's else wonderful. is smooth. Yeah, it's really great. Mm. It's really great. He should do more comedy. Uh, and I have to say, a- Anthony Stewart Head is really he he's just wonderful. In oh, everything. he really he really is. is. He yeah. is. I mean, like one one of the recent new shows that. Uh, oh God, I can't remember the title of it now. But it was the show. It was based on an English show. It starred uh, Hank Azaria and Catherine Hahn. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And I can't. Oh, I can't remember the title of it offhand. But Tony Head was playing their boss, and he was great. <laughs> and he's also uh, uh, in the first season of Jonathan Creek, if memory serves, as uh, Jonathan's boss. And he's just really wonderful in those. And. Uh, I, I I wish I would see more of him. Oh my god, he's on! I just looked at his IMDb. He's on some episodes of Drunk History UK that oh, I really? now have to go. Oh my god! Yes, he's playing Horatio Nelson and Alexander Graham Bell in a different episode. So uh, that is something that will have to be looked at. <laughs> I was so close hmm. to being able to see Anthony Head on stage uh, when oh, I went to London god. last year, and I. Uh, uh, went and saw Rocky Horror Show live, mm. and uh, ah. on the Thursday they were doing like an all star version of it, where the role of the criminologist was being played by several different actors, and Anthony Stewart Head was one of them. Oh, Liz Swoon! It was right, but of course, since it was like the all star version, that one sold out like super fast. So oh, of it course, went Tuesday rather than the Thursday. Though, of course, that version of it is up on YouTube. Like they. Because they filmed it and they showed it on TV. So somebody. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I did remember. He also did a anniversary. They like some network. It was maybe MTV, maybe Fox. Yeah, it was MTV. Like it was MTV and uh, uh, Amber Benson also. Right. And people were trading off the Frankenfurter role. So it was like him and Jesse Martin 
uh, from Law and Order, and oh, he's incredible. And he he did play it on the West End. So oh yeah, well, uh, Anthony Stewart Head is considered the second or third best Frankenfurter that there has ever been. Tim Curry is, of course, number one, but Anthony always Stewart and forever Head is one of the it is one of the top ones. Yeah. yeah, the closest I ever got to seeing Anthony Stewart Head on stage was seeing his brother. On oh stage. yeah. Yes, I saw chess. Okay. I hate that. Kid, I do but- too. The music is fantastic. <laughs> so anyway, if you don't know what we're talking about, Anthony Stewart Head's brother, Murray Head, who had one hit in the 80s, um, yeah. One Night in Bangkok, which is from a musical called Chess, written by the guys from ABBA. Yes. So fun facts for the day. Massive musical theater trivia nerd right here. Yes. I have another fun fact for the day. Do you guys want to hear it? Sure. Did you know that you can sing any Emily Dickinson poem to the tune of the Yellow Rose of Texas? Really? I've heard that. Think, Yeah. I've never tried it, but I've heard that. Because I could not stop her death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> it works. Go look up some Emily Dickinson poems. You can sing them all to the tune of the Yellow Rose of Texas. Oh, wow. Uh, there is your, you get a little singing. There's a little bit of everything in this podcast. Let me just say. She is, after all, an American. I am an American. Yeah. Back on to this episode. Okay, um, yes. <laughs> one thing that bothered me fucking endlessly is why is there a body just out in the funeral home? In the observation room. I was And why is Borba in the observation room? Why is he in the observation room? And I don't understand. Like, there's, you know, he's on, like, an exam table with a sheet on him, but there are flowers up, and it's like... yeah. I mean, it makes a great visual, but it was just, it just seems so weird. Is it like yeah. a morgue slash funeral home? Because that's what it's set up to look like and it not actually. It does seem to be a morgue slash funeral Because I've been in several funeral homes and that's not kind of the setup really I much mean, I, at all. I have to say, I was kind of wondering because, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a New Yorker, but the idea of the funeral home being on the grounds of the cemetery is totally weird to me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's Sunnydale, so they have to combine all of that stuff together. Right. Like, they do call it the Sunnydale Funeral Home. So. But then later on in the series, you find out, I think there's something like 23 funeral, uh, not funeral home, 23 cemeteries in city I thought limits. it was 12 cemeteries and 23 churches. Okay. But I could be wrong. I'd have to fact check uh, myself well, I, on that. I'm, you, you sound a lot more sure than I do. So, Do those 12 cemeteries include church cemeteries? I don't know the answer to that. I will... Ha, I stumped you. I don't think there is, a, I don't think there is an answer to that. So, um. <laughs> And Borba as a vampire. I mean, you've already pointed out that he didn't need to be a vampire. Like, uh, part of me was wondering, right. it's like... Did everybody uh, get vamped? Like, is was that how it worked? Right. That's that was kind of my question. Is like, why did they turn him? And if they turned him, why don't they seem to have turned yeah. anyone else? But I was mostly distracted by the fact that Borba is one of the creepiest vampires we see on the show. But he's so creepy. Oh, yeah. He is over the top creepy. So it becomes kind of a joke. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of over the top creepy before he becomes yeah. a vampire. He is just. Yeah, I think that they're trying to play off the, like, bait-and-switch aspect, so they make it so over-the-top. And trivia fact, Jeff Mead, who plays Borba, also appeared as a demon in the from the Demon Motorcycle Gang in the Season oh. 6 episodes Bargaining and Bargaining Part 2. Okay, So cool. I looked up a little trivia for us today. Yeah, I, I mean, he's his performance is fine. Yeah, it's, just over yeah, it's, it's a little over-the-top. Yeah, the Borba, like, the Anointed One twist... Personally, I saw it coming a million miles away. I mean, it seemed so fun. It's like as soon as they had like uh, the bus with the little kid, I'm like, oh, well, it's going to be the little kid because, I mean, it's creepy kids. You know, that's the way it works. I don't know if I got that one. I don't really remember anymore, but I don't think I spotted it uh, at the time. Yeah, I don't think I did either. I think I was probably more engrossed in something else. I tend to, sometimes I tend to not always remember i'm really great at the little character moments and things like that but sometimes when things get fighty or actiony i actually check out a little bit mm-hmm. because that's the thing that means more to me is the character moments and writing and unless i'm watching a marvel movie then i'm all about the fighting well if you check out during the fighting then there's nothing to right watch. but but i will say the fighting in those movies is actually very 
character and plot driven and not just fighting for fighting's sake like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie or something. Right. And and I think Buffy gets to that place where those fights really become about character and plot and moving things forward. But at this point, there's something I wanted to point out. They they're not quite there yet and <laughs> I love it when I pause to take notes for the podcast. And it's obviously not Sarah Michelle Gellar doing the stunt. When it's Sophie Crawford. Right, I think, yeah. I think at this point it was still Sophie Crawford who was... I think it is, yeah. And it, it the first year is like one of the worst about the masking, but it doesn't actually get much better. Because I remember as far forward as the gift being like, that is Sarah Michelle, or that is the other lady, that is the other... Mm. There are a couple episodes where you're like, yeah, that is really not... The actor. They they were never really great at matching on this show. And it stands out quite a bit. Super thrown during the fight scenes when they've obviously not had Sarah loop the grunting. Because mm. she has a very distinct sound when she's fighting. Whoever is doing it, if it is Sophie Crawford's natural noises, or if they have somebody else looping it, sounds nothing like Sarah Michelle. Uh, It's a lot higher in pitch, and it's like, this is so fake. I actually, I I noticed it last week, and I had made a note of it. I have to say, I'm I'm really sorry to hear all that, because now I'm going to notice (laughs) all this. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's one of those things. No, no, it's it's a valid observation. I've noticed this for years on this show that the, now it gets exponentially better on Angel. Like, so much that it's really seamless. But Buffy, as a show, never quite, and is it because Sarah Michelle Gellar's so tiny? And she's hard to match? Or is it just they're not... Because there are scenes uh, in Becoming, actually, where you can see it is not David Boreanaz. You can actually just see the face. And not if you just pause. Like, you can see that it is not... It's a totally different face. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing about this show, that it was one of the things we did when we used to play a Buffy drinking game. You would drink when you... (laughs) spotted that it wasn't actually when it was not a seamless stunt and when Buffy's bra strap showed. If I remember correctly, David Boreanaz's stunt double, who I don't know if it was his stunt double throughout the entire length of the series, but uh, through a majority of it, his stunt double shows up in the episode of Firefly the Train Job mm-hmm. as one of mm. the one of the henchmen, uh, because on the audio commentary, they actually point out, hey, that's David Boreas' stunt double. And he does, he does kind of look like David. He does. It, it, it was a really good match. And I think they did keep him through, you know, most of Buffy and Angel, but... They don't have him this early, and that's why Angel didn't go to the funeral home. Right. Mm. Also, actually, it just occurs to me, at this point, Angel's really kind of avoiding all the other he vampires. He really is, yeah. So, I mean, like, we through, like every time we've seen him, he, like, says stuff to Buffy and then gets the hell yeah. out. And he does make a comment in um, Welcome to the Hellmouth about how he's afraid. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he knows that Darla is there yet. I don't think he finds that out until Angel... But certainly he knows that it's the Order of Aurelius, and Angel has had interactions with the Order of Aurelius because he is the one who takes Darla away from them, uh, as revealed in the episode Darla. Mm -hmm. So that might be contributing to why he's avoiding them. We do find out in the episode The Wish that they really don't like him. No, they don't. As as he points out when we... (laughs) When we need him. It's like, yeah, they really don't like him. (laughs) They dislike him so much, they in an alternate universe where they win, they keep him locked up and torturing him instead of Mm -hmm. killing him because, you know, death is too good for him, I guess. Right. Yes. I'd say I'm I'm curious now, now that we're talking about how he's like avoiding all the other vampires, like, where is he getting the information he gives to Buffy? Ooh, Good point. The script. The script. I, yeah, I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> see, that would have been a, that would be a great comedy thing if, like, every time we see him, he has a script He's like, like and behind his back. that would have been great. David Boreanaz's <laughs> acting is so witted at the beginning. I think he does have a script behind. His I back. think he does. He's like written the lines on the set. Like, who did that? There was a yes. famous actor that would light. Oh, it was Marlon Brando. As he got all the right lines all over the the set, just so he could remember them. And I think at this point, yeah, David Boreanaz is sort of 
still in that place. Yeah. Seriously, no offense to David. He gets so much better later. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he really does. And, and as I say, he's even yeah. better here. You know, he's he's definitely learning on the job, but he is yeah. learning. Yeah, like, I mean, before this, I think the only thing he had done is, like, he played Kelly Bundy's boyfriend on Married right. Children once. So Whereas you have Sarah Michelle Gellar, who had been acting since she was, like, five. Yeah. And Allie Hannigan, the same thing. Uh, Nicholas yeah. Brandon did not have as much experience, but he's playing light and funny and, I think, a, a personality that's very close to his own. Yeah. And then, obviously, you've got Anthony Stewart Head, who's an, an absolute pro. And Mark Metcalf, who's an absolute pro. So David Boreanaz is going to stick out like a sore thumb. Right. Because he just doesn't have the experience. So we should probably get to talking about the end of the episode. And that's uh, Buffy oh, breaking up with Owen and the yeah. scene between Buffy and Giles. And you know which one that I want to talk about. The one with Owen, right? Because he's your favorite. Oh, yeah. Everyone loves well, Owen. What I think is really <laughs> interesting about the whole thing with Owen is that Buffy He's dreaming. is talking about how... You know, Willow and Xander know the score. Willow and Xander are aware of what her life is. Buffy doesn't have strong enough feelings for Owen that she cares to inform mm. him of, by mm -hmm. the way, they're vampires and demons and I'm the Slayer and you can't go out and pick fights with people because, you know, the people in Sunnydale are actually going to try to kill you and eat you. She doesn't have those strong of feelings for him, so. Yeah, that was actually my thought when she says, you know, if he goes out not knowing the score, he could get himself killed. Or, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you could tell him. I mean, you're not going to. But, but you could. But, I mean, that is an option. I mean, he's a prop to get the point across for the first oh, yeah. time. Well, kind of the second time because of the, the cheerleading thing, but that wasn't boys. Right. No. Well, this is the first time the whole episode is really all about that one thing. And also, I, 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 I kind of find it kind of amusing at, towards the beginning of the episode when Giles gives Buffy this sort of lecture about how, you know, if you tell people about you're being the slayer, you're putting them in danger. I'm like, at this point, that's kind of like that ship's sailed. Yeah. yeah. And the best line in the episode from Giles, all right, I'll just dump in my time machine and go back to the 12th century and ask the vampires yes. to postpone their ancient prophecy for a few days while you take in a dinner and a show. Like... <laughs> The snark of that is like... Oh, I don't know. I think follow your hormones is up that's, there, That's a good one, too. And and how absolutely As a sexy that Giles is when he's being demanding and talking about prophecy. <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta get my Giles love in here every yeah, time. No, it's I get it. mandatory. Well, Giles is great. I, we, we love Giles. We do. We all, we all love, love Giles. Giles. We, some of us love him in different ways oh. than other people. Right, right. I... I, I want to be Giles, if only because he gets to play with books a lot. Ah, good point. Uh, we have uh, Buffy and Giles together, which I said in the beginning, this is kind of the first time we really get Buffy and Giles going past Watcher and Slayer and into the familial relationship that will develop throughout the entire series. Because this is not a matter of this is your destiny. This is a matter of Giles is telling her something from his past you know i didn't want to do this but you do what you have to do and it's it's very much a you know a life lesson it's not about her her destiny mm -hmm. it's, no it's about responsibility exactly. the way he speaks to her it's just lovely and there's this one line in the way he says it she's like and i figured this thing out too and he's like you did <laughs> like it's it's this it's really authentic praise and just the look on his face, he just, re he already really loves her. There are definitely points in this episode where I just sit there and I feel really sad for Buffy. Yeah, I do too. Because this is really terrible in a way that regular people are just not equipped to mm -hmm. deal with. This is not yeah. normal <laughs> in any shape or form. So, and that Giles is able to sympathize with her very directly and express that he's doing that is really good and helpful. This episode, yeah, you're right about the slight bit of sadness because at this point, we're five episodes in and we're seeing Buffy, she's really sunny at this point. She's really hopeful that she might be able to walk the line between, you know, Slayer and relationship or Slayer and school or Slayer and 
you know, all these things. And she time after time gets smacked down and said, no, 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 you can't have that. And as the series progresses, you can see that weighing on her and weighing on her. And so going back and looking at this in hindsight, she's so light and happy at this point. And it is it's a little heartbreaking as, you know, someone looking back from a, a, a perspective of 20 years. Yes, this is before she realizes that like basically her dating life is going to be vampires and vampires. And she's going to have to give up almost everything. Eventually she ends up giving up almost right. everything. So yeah. in season 5 she does yeah. she gives up she does. everything. She does. And this is sort of her journey. Literally. Yeah, literally. And she's on that path, but it it is a little weird to see her so bright and sunny at this point. Yeah, this episode mm-hmm. really is kind of the first time that she realizes that oh, I can't balance a completely normal life with being a slayer. It's just impossible. But she continues to fight against that, and I think that's very admirable. She'll keep trying, but this is, I think this is the first place where she realizes, she she realizes it, but she doesn't quite accept yeah, it yet. which is completely understandable. I mean, something like that is not oh, yes. something that you can accept right away. No, no. And I, and I think she, you know, consistently, as the series goes on, tries to give herself those moments where she's not being the slayer and not every single one of those leads to failure and badness because she's really really strong and she's really resilient so she's gonna find ways to make this different for her but you know i'm buffy's biggest cheerleader so the whole arc of the show within the fictional universe is to some extent buffy redefining who the slayer is oh definitely yeah I mean, that's that's the entire show. Yeah, I think I talked about it in the very, very first episode that I I found all my Tales of the Slayer yes. short story collections. And I've actually been looking through those a lot. And it's talking about non-canonical different Slayers and how they go about being the Slayer. And a lot of them in these stories do turn it on its head a little bit because I think they're trying to, you know, show the cause and effect of Buffy and the, you know, but yeah, they, some of them are really interesting so far. And Buffy does. She breaks the mold. She doesn't follow the rules and she's who she is and tries to be as true to herself as she can. Not going to succeed in really changing what being the Slayer means until we get to Chosen. But yeah, it is kind of the running theme throughout the entire series. Oh, yeah, but she'll wind up changing it massively mm-hmm. in season Well, seven. she even changes it a little bit as we go on with like not like refusing to listen to the council. Yeah. And follow any oh, yes. of the rooms. It is- There's a lot of change throughout. But then at in season seven, like the very concept of, mm. you know, spoiler, you know, the very concept of there is one girl in all the world just goes out the window. Which she starts here because she begins sharing her power, not her actual physical power, but her duty with Xander mm-hmm. and Willow. And Cordy and yes. Angel and yes. then her various boyfriends. You know, she's sharing. Yes. She's trying to share yeah. the power even at yeah. this point. Yeah, it begins right at the beginning of the series. So, yeah, and, and just escalates throughout and becomes more and more. It's more and more. It's it's about. It's, it's, to some extent, it's, it's about just not having to be alone mm, yeah mm-hmm. i mean that's been the tradition of yeah, the, it's the one girl not only are one girl the world. one girl in all the world and not just the one girl but the one girl who can't have any friends mm-hmm. <laughs> and she just says no to hell with that <laughs> which is why she lives past the age of 21 kind of kind of exactly that, kind of she turns being not alone into an advantage mm-hmm. a, a tactical advantage which is kind of surprising no one thought of that before, but yeah. Well, I mean, look at how badly it goes when you know, the military tries to do it in season four. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Right. Because there's no feminine energy to that. It's all masculine dominance. So because you know, we can talk about that when we get to season four, the you know, masculine dominance versus the feminine energy of the slayer. As it is now, we should probably be wrapping things up final feelings on never kill a boy on the first date i liked it better than i remembered liking it and i think owen is probably a really great lit professor yeah i I like it well enough Mm -hmm. i think that's probably my opinion it's not one that i'm ever going to go out of my way to watch but it's not one that i would turn off it i found it on tv in rerun yeah yeah that's that's probably about right okay so uh next time we'll be reviewing the pack which I'm sure will have a lot to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. So until then, grr, arg. Grr, arg. Grr, arg.
We'd like to thank everyone who downloaded the podcast, and an extra special thanks to everyone who shared, liked, and subscribed on social media. You can find us all over the web. We're on both iTunes and Stitcher, and we've also uploaded onto YouTube. Just search for Return to the Hellmouth. You can leave us comments at our website, returntothehellmouth.com, on Tumblr and Facebook at Return to the Hellmouth, on Twitter at Hellmouth Return, or on email at returntothehellmouth at gmail.com. We'll be sure to read them on the show. For those of you who are Star Wars fans, there is still a new episode of our sister podcast, The Trash Compactor, available for download. See you on Tuesday for The Pack. Grr. Arg.